conceptually based on a much older collection of technologies, including wireless telegraphy, the text message, a written message typed out on a cellular telephone or other device, didn't emerge in its modern form until 1984, when the Global Systems for Modern Communication, or GSM, standard was developed by the European Telecommunications Standards Institute. This standard defined the protocols for second-generation cellular network functionality, which would upgrade the increasingly popular first-generation networks that allowed early mobile phones to operate using analog telecommunications standards. In essence, old-school analog phone lines were augmented in the 1980s to allow for basic mobile communications. But this new 2G setup was drummed up to replace those analog signals with digital signals, increasing the quality of voice calls, but also allowing for other add-on services, like texting. GSM, then, was the new 2G standard that replaced the old hacked-together 1G standard for mobile telephone service. Short Message Service, or SMS, was built alongside and released as part of that larger GSM standard, which meant that this new digital mobile service would allow users to send 160-character text messages to each other alongside standard phone functionality. The first test SMS message was sent in December of 1992 in the UK, though it was typed out on a desktop computer and sent to someone using a GSM-based telephone handset. So a modern phone, in the sense that it held a SIM card and connected to the 2G telephone service, but super antique-looking by today's standards, with a coiled cable connecting the handset to a base, a giant antenna growing out of one side, and the whole contraption taking up about as much space as a chunky waffle iron. That first text message, by the way, was Merry Christmas. Throughout the next decade, the service slowly became available on networks around the world as the requisite hardware began to roll out to the backbone infrastructure of cellular service and as devices that could tap into this network hit the market. Finland was an early adopter in this space, deploying the first consumer-capable text messaging service for their Nokia phones which were some of the only available handsets on the market that allowed users to type out messages in the early days of SMS deployment. Also substantially slowing SMS adoption in the technology's early days was the fact that most networks only allowed texting between devices on the same network. So if you were using AT&T and a friend was on T-Mobile or O2, you wouldn't be able to text each other. This restriction largely disappeared by 1999, though, and when it was lifted, the number of text-capable handsets on the market and the newfound ability to text between most phones, regardless of what network they were on, led to a surge in texting popularity. In 1995, only 0.4 text messages were sent per 2G-enabled customer per month, That number inflated to 35 per user per month by the end of 2000, 
And by the end of 2006, right before the dawn of smartphones, which would hit shelves in 2007, over 205 million text messages were sent in the UK alone. By 2007, text messaging would become the most popular data service across all carriers, with about 74% of mobile phone users worldwide making use of the technology, and about 85% in early adopter nations like Finland, Sweden, and Norway. The aforementioned introduction of smartphones both amplified and watered down SMS usage with time, as 3G cellular services, which allowed for better transmission of data, introduced media-rich content to feature phones and smartphones, enabling apps, but also introducing emoji, GIFs, and even just plain old images to the mobile internet, something that was possible before to some degree, but not really practical, as data transmission speeds were not sufficient to make sending images, much less audio or video content, practical beyond proof-of-concept use cases. MMS, which is a sort of evolution of SMS, in that it seems similar on the user side of things, though it works in a different way, using an intermediary server to collect sent content before forwarding it on to the recipient, using the internet to do so, rather than straight-up phone signals if the recipient is on a different phone network. This new protocol, MMS, has largely taken over because most phones are now capable of receiving media-rich messages. And in a lot of cases, it's simpler and cheaper for carriers to utilize internet-based infrastructure when transmitting these sorts of messages than it is to use the comparably simpler and more limited SMS text messages that are based on now outdated technology that is rapidly being replaced in all but the most rural parts of the world. Probably the biggest shift in this space, though, began when companies like Research in Motion, through their popular BlackBerry handsets, introduced their own more secure, more feature-rich multimedia texting services, which used the internet and private protocols to make texting more reliable, more capable, and overall more functional allowing users to send images, voice notes, files up to 16 megabytes in size, and real-time locations on a map, among other things, which flipped the script to some degree as to how users perceived the humble text message. Suddenly, texts were no longer just quick little character-based missives, but potentially something more. And that perception segued cleanly into a new type of messaging service based on downloaded third-party applications rather than just carrier-included software, stuff that was baked into the phone when you bought it. And this shift was enabled by a confluence of more powerful devices, 3G capabilities, and more sophisticated internet-based transmission infrastructure. What I'd like to talk about today is chat applications, how they're evolving, and the impact that they've had and continue to have on society. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Wired UK, and it's entitled, Belarus Has Torn Up the Protest Rulebook. Everyone should listen. With the subtitle, One Messaging App Helped Protesters Fight Alexander Lukashenko's Digital Blackout. Can it bring him down? 
The situation in Belarus, as of the day I'm recording this, is a rapidly evolving one, and there's a good chance that the circumstances could shift dramatically, one way or the other, by the time this episode goes live. But the situation as it stands now is fairly grim, but in some ways also somewhat hopeful. For context, the Republic of Belarus is an Eastern European nation that arose alongside the Soviet Union after the Russian Revolution of 1917 as a Soviet Socialist Republic. They lost about half their territory to Poland in the Polish-Soviet War of 1919 through 1921, but after World War II, they gained some of it back when the Soviet Union reshuffled the area's borders, though they lost about a quarter of their population and economic infrastructure during the war in the trade-off. Belarus was a founding member of the United Nations, and they declared independent sovereignty when the USSR was breaking apart in 1991. They signed a treaty with the new Russian state in 2000, promising close collaboration, and the country's current president, considered by many to be a dictator, which has earned Belarus the title of Europe's last dictatorship, that leader, Alexander Lukashenko, has been running the country since 1994. Under Lukashenko's regime, many Soviet practices have continued long after the breakup of the Soviet Union, and he describes his own style of leadership firsthand as authoritarianism. Today, there are about 9.5 million people in Belarus, and it's landlocked, with Ukraine to the south, Poland to the west, Lithuania and Latvia to the north, and Russia to the east. The circumstances referenced in that Wired UK article are nicely summarized in the first few paragraphs of a recent New York Times piece entitled Belarus Protests Test Limits of Lukashenko's Brutal One-Man Rule. From that piece, quote, He jokes about running a dictatorship. He makes his generals salute his teenage son, who shares his penchant for dressing in military uniforms. He commands a brutal security service that makes people disappear. And when COVID-19 arrived, he told people to play hockey, drive tractors, and not worry about it. Alexander Lukashenko, the embattled ruler of Belarus and the most enduring leader of the former Soviet Union, heads a regime that is less a one-party state than a one-person state. In 26 years as president, he has turned Belarus into a strategically important and reliably authoritarian buffer between Russia and NATO member democracies like Poland, end quote. It goes on to say, quote, Since a disputed election on October 9th, however, the biggest demonstrations in the country's history have tested whether Mr. Lukashenko's iron-fisted suppression of dissent can keep him in power after he claimed a landslide victory that is widely seen as fiction. As many as 100,000 protesters poured into central Minsk, the capital, on Sunday, a powerful show of defiance in a country with only 9.5 million people, end quote. This is where the Wired UK piece picks up, detailing a protest event on August 16th at which over 100,000 citizens gathered around a World War II monument chanting, Leave, in reference to Lukashenko, who has continued, despite this and other recent protests of increasing size and enthusiasm, to say that he will not leave, that the protesters are part of a scheme by outside Western influences trying to usurp his good and correct rule, or perhaps even part of a plot by Russia. His story changes, seemingly, by the day. 
But whatever the case, these protesters are no good. His role, in his mind, is correct and virtuous, and thus he can do whatever he wants to quash their efforts, including instructing police to brutally beat, kidnap, torture, and disappear people at these protests, or those suspected of having participated in these protests later, when they're just out on the street going about their everyday lives, or in their own homes. Part of the government's crackdown has involved shutting down the internet, with the intention of disrupting the protesters' organizational capabilities and their ability to record and share abuses by police with each other and the rest of the world. Much of what those of us not directly involved with these protests know about what takes place at such events is the consequence of social media posts sharing photos and videos of these abuses, There's little information available through other channels, including actual news entities that have either been forbidden to report on these protests, or which in some cases have left their newsrooms in protest of the government's oversteps and violence. It hasn't helped that Lukashenko told Belarusian citizens that the COVID-19 coronavirus wasn't anything to worry about, and that people should continue as normal, perhaps drinking some vodka or stepping into a sauna as a cure, if they come down with something. As part of this denial, journalists were prevented from accessing hospitals or hospital staff, and only state-run news entities that operate as voice boxes for the government were allowed to continue reporting, mostly misinformation. Leading up to the country's recent election, Lukashenko's main opposition candidate, a blogger named Sergei Tikhanovskia, was locked up, and two subsequent candidates, a banker and an entrepreneur, were locked up and fled the country, respectively. Then, the wife of that original competitor who was jailed, a 37-year-old English teacher named Svetlana Tikhanovskia, announced that she would run against Lukashenko. She and her support team, including folks from the teams and families of those other candidates who were locked up or threatened until they fled the country, were very popular. And although no one really thought the election would be fair, enthusiasm for this trio was high, and local tech companies encouraged voters to use an online voting system that was meant to get more people involved and to make the process easier and more trackable. In the days leading up to the election, journalists and free election activists were rounded up by the KGB, the country's intelligence service, and on the day of the election, the internet was taken down by the government, though they claim it was, somewhat conveniently for them, taken down by some kind of outside entity that wanted to hurt the country, an outside entity that just happened to only want to block news that wasn't controlled by the Belarusian government and services that many citizens intended to use to vote. Lukashenko eventually claimed victory, saying he received 80% of the votes, and though many basic online services were still blocked, the fourth most popular messaging app, Telegram, became the most popular service overnight, as it allowed users to bypass many of these almost certainly government-caused online limitations. Citizens were able to share information, transmit news, and organize would-be protesters in the aftermath of the vote. Part of what's made this round of protests so impactful, some analysts claim, is that the use of a free private messaging service like Telegram allowed the protests to spread beyond Minsk, the country's capital, into small and medium-sized cities and towns. The nature of this app allowed the protest movement to become decentralized, not run by any one person or group, 
but instead taken up by people neighborhood to neighborhood, district to district. Groups of people were able to organize without being snooped upon, without being blocked, and could therefore create a counter-message to the one being promulgated by the state-run news sources, which lacking such communication channels would otherwise be the only mass media available to anyone but the most internet savvy. Alongside these ground-level organizational efforts, news entities that have been blocked because they provide actual journalistic reporting, rather than government-approved propaganda, have started using Telegram as their main distribution hub, rather than as an afterthought side channel, like many news networks use Facebook or YouTube, to supplement their main distribution channels around the world. Those politicians who managed to avoid being locked up and who fled to neighboring countries where they hoped to be safe from Lukashenko's police forces have also used Telegram to broadcast regular messages to their followers, in some cases producing daily reports at a given time, like a TV show, providing information, rallying protesters, and in some cases pushing their own agendas, some of which are only loosely based on actual facts while others are more reality-based. In any case, the prime directive of such oppositional chat app broadcasting seems to be toppling Lukashenko, rather than necessarily providing objective information, which is arguably an amplified version of what politicians around the world do, to varying degrees, no matter what state their democracy happens to be in at the time. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Telegram, As of October 2019, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission reports that the service has about 300 million users worldwide. The app was developed by a pair of Russian app developers, brothers named Nikolai and Pavel Durov, who were previously best known for developing the Russian social network VK, which they left when it was taken over by Mail.ru Group a major Russian internet conglomerate, and after a somewhat opaque series of events that culminated with former CEO Pavel Durov claiming that the company had basically been taken over by Vladimir Putin's political faction, and that he was more or less forced out of the company when he refused to hand over personal details about users on the network who had recently participated in a series of protests to Putin's people. The Durovs then left Russia, said that they had no plans to go back, and Pavel Durov said that, quote, the country is incompatible with internet business at the moment, end quote. That was in 2014. Telegram was launched by the brothers Durov the year before that self-imposed exile, back in 2013. And though the company was founded in Russia, it has since officially shifted to a base in Germany, and the team behind the app, somewhat famously, moves around on a regular basis, reportedly because it keeps them from being too heavily influenced by any particular government. As of 2017, they were working from Dubai, though they apparently have at least a few employees working from elsewhere as well, including St. Petersburg. The company is registered to operate around the world, though, including in countries like the U.S. and the U.K., As an app, Telegram will be at least passingly familiar to anyone who's ever used WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, WeChat, or one of the many operating system-specific messaging apps that come bundled with smartphones these days. Alongside the basic functionality of being able to communicate one-to-one or one-to-many, it also gives users the ability to make free voice and video calls, post GIFs and stickers, create channels as part of that one-to-many functionality I mentioned, so you can post things to a channel 
Invite other people and they will see your posts, despite not being able to post anything there themselves. All that alongside in-app games, a development platform for making your own bots, the ability to share one's current location with anyone, the ability to meet nearby strangers, somewhat randomly, and an online authorization and identity management system that can allow users to confirm that they are real people once to Telegram, and then to use that confirmation for other apps so that they don't have to keep sharing photos of their passport over and over with every random app that they might want to use in the future. One of the core benefits of an app like Telegram over some comparable apps is the way in which they encrypt their traffic via a symmetric encryption scheme called MT-Proto, which is fairly secure, or seems to be, at least compared to methods used by many other chat apps, but it's also proprietary and thus difficult for outside analysts to fully audit, and end-to-end encryption is not activated by default, on Telegram. Users have to set their messages to private, and even then it's been shown that metadata is generated and accessible by suitably knowledgeable hackers who might want to get their hands on it. The real value of Telegram in this circumstance, and in other circumstances in which it's been popularly used, like during recent protests in Hong Kong, is that privacy of some kind is possible. The service itself is free and widely available across most operating systems and devices, and it's possible to send out one message and have that message be received by a huge number of people, 200,000 people at once if you're using group chats, and an unlimited number if you're posting to a channel that you operate, the latter of which is open to anyone and the former of which requires an invite to access, and is therefore often more useful when it comes to protests, but sometimes the channels are useful in those cases as well. Now, when the majority of us are deciding which chat apps to use, sorting out which is most likely to get us blackbagged by our government is hopefully not at the top of our feature wish list. There are plenty of reasons to use Facebook Messenger, Skype, Google Duo, or Hangouts, or whatever it is that Google is calling their branded chat app this week, or something like WhatsApp. Core to such a decision will instead likely be related to the network effect enjoyed by the app in question. Essentially, which app is most popular with the friends that we want to talk to. This is a strangely pervasive problem that is similar in some ways to the issues found in those early SMS protocols back in the infant days of texting, because most chat apps cannot communicate with other chat apps. So if you download WhatsApp and I download Signal, we cannot chat with each other using our respective apps. One or the other of us will have to give in and download a second or a third or a fourth app in some cases with the exclusive purpose of chatting with just one person who happens to use that particular app instead of the one that we tend to use. This is an especially common problem if you travel a lot. I personally have a half dozen chat apps on my phone, and four of those are only on my phone so that I can talk to one or two people who live in a country in which those apps are the dominant ones. And those same apps have little or no market penetration back here in the United States. Also increasingly important to the decision-making process is how well video chat services work within these apps. Whether there are additional bits and bobs like in-app games and augmented reality filters so we can be aliens or cats while chatting with each other. 
and whether or not there is a cost associated with any aspect of the app. Some of them charge for premium games and face filters, for instance, or charge a paid subscription fee if you want to video chat for longer than a set period of time. If you are looking for the ultimate privacy-oriented app, there are unfortunately no silver bullet solutions, though some seem to be better than others at the moment. WhatsApp, for instance, has credible end-to-end encryption built into their service, and it's turned on by default, which is nice. But WhatsApp is also owned by Facebook and has a policy of sometimes turning over information and chat logs to law enforcement, and that includes law enforcement in countries where the law enforcement entities are run by authoritarians and other sorts of abusive leaders. They also made a 2016 amendment to their privacy policy that allows them to share WhatsApp data with their parent company, including phone numbers and usage data. For what it's worth, WhatsApp's end-to-end encryption is provided by a company called Open Whisper Systems, which makes its own chat app called Signal. And in fact, the protocol they provide to WhatsApp is called the Signal Protocol. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has a wonderful and thorough tool guide for folks wanting to maintain privacy on their devices, in which they run through the best way to use WhatsApp, if that's your only option, but also how to install and use Signal and a few other apps, alongside general advice on setting up and using your devices. I'll link to that guide in the show notes, but you can also find it by searching for EFF Surveillance Self-Defense and then clicking on the Tool Guide section. Not all apps have instructions there, because not all apps are recommended in terms of privacy. So this guide is useful for choosing which app to focus most of your chatting on as well. Even Signal, though, if you can convince your friends to use it and are able to set it up so that you have arguably, by many metrics, the most private and secure chat app available on any device, is flawed. And this has little to do with the company behind the app and their efforts, and more to do with the sophistication of acronymed organizations like the CIA, which have gotten very good at figuring out how to extract information from just about any hardware or software if they decide to do so. Back in 2017, there was a major hack of the CIA, and WikiLeaks dumped what was learned from this hack, which became known as the Vault 7 hack, on the internet for anyone to peruse. Alongside a bunch of government-caliber hacking tools that until this point had been the exclusive domain of the CIA, we also learned through this leaked information that this agency was capable of breaking into whatever, whenever, but that it often took a fair amount of effort and resources to do so. In other words, using privacy-focused apps and approaches is not foolproof if someone really, really wants to see what you're saying and doing, and has these sorts of resources on hand. But it does prevent, or at least reduce, the mass collection of data from your devices, which means broad target sweeps of everyone at a particular protest, for instance, will be a lot less likely to work on your phone, even if those doing the sweeping are using relatively sophisticated tools. It would take focused, targeted effort to access your private information via your even relatively secure chat apps. And that barrier, to some, 
is worth the time and energy invested in figuring out how best to communicate within this leaky sieve of an internet that is nonetheless almost always the backbone of the best tools we have available today for these sorts of communication purposes. book that I'd like to recommend this week is called Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To by David Sinclair. I wasn't really sure what to expect when I started reading this book. This is a space that I'm interested in, the field of inquiry into extending both lifespan and health span. So not just making sure that you have more years that you can live, but also making sure that you enjoy and can fully enjoy more of those years. It's something that I'm fairly passionate about, but I'm also, because of that passion, quite skeptical about a lot of what goes on in this space. Unfortunately, the majority of what's out there, I think it's safe to say at this point, is snake oil or a misinterpretation of what we actually know. It's very enthusiastic, but also a little bit cult-like at times, and a lot of the science just isn't there yet to back up most of the claims being made. This book does a pretty good job of towing the line. It gets into a lot of what's being discussed and some of the best potential approaches and treatments and chemicals and so on that might allow us to extend the amount of time that we have, but also get rid of a lot of the age-related conditions that we have to deal with later in life so that you could be a perfectly healthy 110-year-old and still be able to climb a mountain and talk to your grandkids and enjoy life rather than simply being alive. And the crux of the argument that is made here is that aging is a disease. It's a collection of things that happen to us that don't have to happen to us. And the fact that we treat this as a natural thing is similar to us treating cancers and things like that as just a natural thing that we can't do anything about. There was a time where that was the case, but increasingly so, that's not necessarily the case. And the thesis of this book is essentially that we will reach a point in which we can cure many of these age-related issues, and the scope of the book is running through some of the ways that we might do that. Again, I don't think we have enough data with most of these things beyond pure anecdote to say with any certainty what will happen, what the long-term outcomes are, and so on. But it is very interesting to get this kind of overview from somebody who is both fairly obsessed with the concept, but also pretty balanced, it seems to me, with his approach and support for different things in this space. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Lifespan by David Sinclair. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.